Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to look at the childhood memoirs, mostly childhood memoirs, of the great novelist Amos Oz. It is a trail of recollections that follow a mother, a father, and a young son through the complex, intense Jerusalem of the 1940s. The book is entitled A Tale of Love and Darkness. It was translated by Oz's longtime English-language doppelganger, Nicholas Delange, and was published in 2003. Amos Oz is entering his mid-70s, and you'd think he'd be coming to the end of his career. But judging by his recent literary output, three books in the last five years, that's hardly the case. In fact, I saw him speak a little over five years ago, when he had just published Rhyming Life and Death, and dude was robust. I think one can safely assume he'll be working for a long time yet, and this is a great thing. One of Oz's most beloved novels is My Michael. One of his best, in my mind, is A Perfect Peace. He has experimented with prose and verse in the novel The Same Sea, and he has written about the politics of Israelis and Palestinians in books big and small, including the brief, extremely useful tract, How to Cure a Fanatic. But for me, there is one book that takes its place in my heart above all others, and that is Panther in the Basement. That novel, which also takes place in Jerusalem of the 1940s, is the story of a boy nicknamed Profi, short for Professor who gets that tag on account of his habit of pontificating on almost any subject. I can relate. As the British are preparing to leave Palestine to Jews and Palestinians, the young Profi makes friends with a lonely British officer who offers to teach him English. The boy is torn. On the one side are his friends, who would see such cavorting with the enemy soldier as a form of sedition. On the other side is Profi's boundless love of knowledge and wish to explore the wider world. Panther in the Basement is a wonderful story about a boy who is exploring a strange, dangerous time and place, but it's in the investigation of what makes someone loyal or a traitor, a question that must be close to Oz's heart, as he has been described as an exemplar of both, that this novel becomes beautiful and brilliant. It's because of my great love for Panther in the Basement that I approached A Tale of Love and Darkness with some hesitation. That earlier book was so good. Could this one match up? And if it didn't, Wouldn't it in some way trouble my memories of the previous work, which covers some of the same time and place? The short answer to all this is, stupid me. I was not an Oz expert before reading A Tale of Love and Darkness, but I can say that the details of his life and works that I did know were tremendously augmented by reading the memoirs. In this sense, I can compare it to reading Mario Vargas Llosa's excellent political and literary autobiography, A Fish in the Water. Have I mentioned Vargas Llosa on this podcast before? This is sarcasm. Of course I have. Tangent. Like so many Vargas Llosa books, A Fish in the Water proceeds along two tracks. One track is the story of his nearly successful but ultimately failed bid for the presidency of Peru in 1990. The other track is a recollection of the writings of his novels, one per chapter. So you get to hear how he conceived and wrote Conversation in the Cathedral, Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter, and so on. Revisiting the earlier novels through the recollections is one of the central pleasures of reading the memoirs. In the case of A Tale of Love and Darkness, tangent over, the recollections about the conception and writing of novels are sparser and more fleeting, but when they come, they glitter. So it was particularly exciting for me, and a hint that I was on the way to somewhere good, 
that the first pages of A Tale of Love and Darkness begin by describing one of the memorable settings from Panther in the Basement, the study-slash-bedroom that belonged to Oz's parents. In the novel, the tiny, book-saturated room with its disappearing Murphy bed is described as a holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, accessible only by the priests, only on certain days, but a place that has filled imaginations large and small. In Oz's pantheon, the Holy of Holies is filled with books of history, philology, and poetry, reflections of his polyglot father's wide interests. And it is in this little room, in a cramped apartment, in an impoverished part of the city, that so much of Oz's family life and memories transpire. I was born and bred in a tiny, low-ceilinged, ground-floor apartment. My parents slept on a sofa bed that filled their room almost from wall to wall when it was opened up each evening. Early every morning, they used to shut away this bed deep into itself, hide the bedclothes in the chest underneath, turn the mattress over, press it all tight shut, and conceal the hole under a light grey cover, then scatter a few embroidered oriental cushions on top so that all evidence of their night's sleep disappeared. In this way, their bedroom also served as study, library, dining room, and living room. Having set out his family's circumstances in the first couple pages, Oz widens the lens to look at the city where he was raised, which shows that while Oz lived in a particularly poor corner of Jerusalem, the rest of the city was not at all like that. It was wonderfully varied, both materially and culturally. As the years passed, I became aware that Jerusalem, under British rule in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s, must be a fascinating cultured city. It had big businessmen, musicians, scholars, and writers. Martin Buber, Gershom Sholem, S.Y. Agnon, and a host of other eminent academics and artists. Sometimes as we walked down Ben Yehuda Street on Ben Maimon Avenue, my father would whisper to me, Look, there is a scholar with a worldwide reputation. One of these scholars is Oz's great-uncle, Joseph Klausner. Klausner was Oz's family name, and Amos himself changed it to Oz, which means strength. Joseph Klausner lived across the street from S.Y. Agnon, who later won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Agnon and Klausner actively disliked each other, and, as Oz recalls it, Agnon's house was preserved while Klausner's was not, although the little road where Agnon's house remains has since been renamed Klausner Street, so one all. In many ways, Oz's father aspired to be the second Joseph Klausner, and to some degree, so did the young Amos. Every Sunday, mother, father, and little boy took the long bus ride across the city, from poor Karim Avraham to Gentile Rahavia, where they spent the day listening to Uncle Joseph's uninterrupted disquisitions, usually on poetry or philology. The other hero of Oz's youth were the pioneers, Jews settling the rural parts of the land, mostly kibbutz dwellers, as well as members of the Haganah, who trafficked arms and fought in the resistance against the British. The pioneers lived beyond our horizon in Galilee, Sharon, and the valleys. Tough, warm-hearted, though of course silent and thoughtful, young men and strapping, straightforward, self-disciplined young woman who seemed to know and understand everything, 
They knew you and your shy confusion, yet they would treat you with affection, seriousness and respect, treat you not like a child, but like a man, albeit an undersized one. I pictured these pioneers as strong, serious, self-contained people, capable of sitting around in a circle and singing songs of heart-trending longing, or songs of mockery, or outrageous songs of lust, or of dancing so wildly that they seemed to transcend the physical. They were capable of loneliness and introspection, of living outdoors, sleeping in tents, doing hard labor, singing. We are always at the ready. Your boys brought your peace with a plowshare. Today they bring peace with a gun. They could ride wild horses or white tractors. They spoke Arabic, knew every cave and wadi, had a way with pistols and hand grenades, yet read poetry and philosophy. They were large men with inquiring minds and hidden feelings, who could converse in a near whisper by candlelight in their tents in the small hours of the morning about the meaning of our lives and the grim choices between love and duty, between patriotism and universal justice. Frail, bookish, and seemingly sickly as a child, Oz's dream was nonetheless to belong to such a group of young, strong, tanned, virile, fair-haired Jews. And the author fills sections of his memoirs with young Amos's extended reveries of heroic resistance. I too was a child of the underground. More than once I drove out the British with the flanking movement of my troops, sank his majesty's fleet after a daring ambush at sea, kidnapped and court-martialed the High Commissioner and even the King of England himself, and with my own hands I raised the Hebrew flag, like those soldiers raising the stars and stripes at Iwo Jima on an American stamp. After driving them out, I would sign an agreement with the conquered to set out the front of the so-called civilized, enlightened nations against the waves of savage Orientals with their ancient curly writing and their curved scimitars that threatened to burst out of the desert to kill, loot, and burn us with blood-curdling guttural shrieks. I wanted to grow up to be like the good-looking, curly-haired, tight-lipped statue of David by Bernini, reproduced on the title page of Uncle Joseph's book. I wanted to be a strong, silent man with a slow, deep voice, not like Uncle Joseph's greedy, slightly querulous voice. I didn't want my hands to be like his soft old lady's hands. The recollections of real and imaginary 1940s Jerusalem, a place where, as Amos Oz recalls it, everyone was writing a book and therefore living a tale, are interwoven with historical recollections and fictions of Oz's ancestors in 19th and 20th century Eastern Europe. On his father, Arie Klausner's side, the family hails from big cities, Odessa and Vilna. Oz describes the Jews of these times and places as the last Europeans, at a time of nationalism when neighbors of hundreds of years were suddenly discovering that they were Germans while the family across the street were Czechs, Poles, or Lithuanians, Jews were the last to partake of pan-continental culture, to speak as many languages 
and learn as many literatures as possible. Whether or not we believe this assertion wholeheartedly, it is certainly true in large part. Jews could not belong to these newly formed nations, which is one of the reasons they sought to create their own. Zionism was an imitation of European nationalism, but also a counter to it. While the Klausner side of the family were urbanites, the Musmans, on Oz's mother's side, were rural types. The patriarch of the family was uneducated but highly intelligent. He built himself a fortune with little help and despite a lot of bad luck. Oz's mother was the third of three sisters, educated in the village school, and the story of her upbringing is mixed with Tolstoyan tales of love, madness, and obsession, the types of things that happen in the quasi-Russian countryside. The three daughters were also taught to be Zionists, and when conditions at home became impossible, the entire family emigrated to Palestine. Within these family histories, we have an overflowing cast of characters. There's Grandma Shlomit, obsessed, and I do mean obsessed, with cleaning, forcing her husband to wake up at 6.30 every morning to go through a ritual of boiling and dusting and beating and sweeping and wiping and rewiping. There's that husband, Alexander, who nurses a secret but dogged desire to write Russian poetry, an art he practiced every day of his adult life. Added to that is the story of the charming headmaster, Issachar Rice, with whom all the schoolgirls and many of their mothers were in love. And it goes on and on. But, and this is the thing with family history, as much as it shows what was created, it also shows what was destroyed. Take, for example, the case of Oz's uncle, who stayed behind in Vilna when his siblings and parents emigrate. He had a wife, he had a child, but nobody hears from him again. When we read these stories, we think of all the people and all their acts that have since vanished, and not peacefully, as the sonorous word vanish wrongly implies. The pull between opposites, in this case abundance and emptiness, shapes the way Oz writes, what he writes about, and how we read it. Gentle irony is everywhere in a tale of love and darkness, and when I use the term irony, I mean the displacement of meaning. Irony can be saying one thing and meaning another. It can be intentional or unintentional. It can be understood or completely missed. What all these things share is an uncertainty. We know the words we read, but we can never be entirely sure what they mean. Look at the example of young Amos, a bookworm and a weakling, whose thoughts are almost entirely consumed with military exploits and muscular chauvinistic nationalism. These last words sound harsh. The ideas behind them certainly are. But how do we, the reader, interpret them when uttered by an eight-year-old boy? As bluster? Brainwashing? Humor? Is it a loss of childhood innocence? The sign of a burgeoning and brilliant imagination? Probably it's all of the above. Likewise, what do we make of the fact that Uncle Joseph Klausner and Oz's father, Arie, genteel scholars with soft hands, put up propaganda posters and support Menachem Begin and the right-wing aggressive nationalists, the Irgun? Is this blunder? brainwashing, incidental humor, a lack of imagination, all of the above. So the father is a child of a man, but what happens when the man is a child? The book is filled with these kinds of statements and questions. Everything is put into fruitful doubt. And this achievement, Oz's expert use of irony, is one of the reasons that, at 538 more or less completely filled pages, a tale of love and darkness still ends too soon. You feel like Oz has just started opening up the world and you want him to keep on contrasting words and actions, speech and speakers, ideas and realities. Perhaps the central clashes that do not allow for complete understanding in this book occur in the marriage between Amos's mother and father. 
Oz is clearly mesmerized by his mother, and the memoirs, when they're not looking to the past, revolve largely around her and the defining act of her life. Having said that, Oz was not the only one to be mesmerized. It's repeatedly made clear that Fania Musman, as she was called before marriage, was a catch. Aryeh Klausner, on the other hand, was not, not even close. So while her superlative looks secured her much attention, in Oz's recollection and the recollection of others, it's a mystery, an enduring mystery, why she ended up with a man who seemed so ill-suited to her in so many ways. Looks, temperament, interests, goals, you name it. For a number of reasons, Fania Musman is an enduringly enigmatic character. Arya Klausner's person, on the other hand, is picked to the bone in these pages. And though the son allows for much misunderstanding and even enmity towards his bookish, wayward father, those sentiments are softened and complicated in the way Oz describes this person who was, after all, just a young man. There are two things in particular that stand out. The first is the way Oz consistently relates his father's distinct and distinctly pedantic pattern of speech. That's quite enough for one day. As for you, Amos, remember you're having a bath tonight and washing your hair. No, I'm certainly not letting you off. Why should I? Can you give me one good reason to put off washing your hair? No. In that case, you should never even try to start an argument if you haven't got the slightest shadow of a reason. Remember this well from now on. I want, and I don't want, aren't reasons. They can only be defined as self-indulgence. And incidentally, the word define comes from a Latin word meaning end or limit. And every act of definition denotes tracing a limit or border dividing what is inside from what is outside. In fact, it may well be related to the word defense, and the same image is mirrored in the Hebrew word from definition, derived as it is from the word for fence. Now, cut your fingernails, please, and throw all the dirty clothes in the laundry basket. Your underwear, your shirt, your socks, the lot. Then into your pajamas, a cup of cocoa, and bed. And that's enough of you for today. The meandering between high and low is typical of his scholarly demeanor. These are the tangential flights that deprive the father of authority when it comes to running daily life. The beautiful word Luftmensch, literally a man made of air, but more closely meaning a man whose head is in the clouds, captures Oz's father completely. The second is a specific description of the father from a family photograph that actually maybe it just needs to be read. In a picture taken back in Odessa in 1913 or 1914, my grandfather is wearing a bow tie, a gray hat with a shiny silk band and a three-piece suit whose open jacket reveals running across the buttoned-up vest, a fine line of silver apparently connected to a pocket watch. The dark silk bow stands out against his brilliant white shirt. There is a high shine on his black shoes. His smart cane hangs, as usual, from his arm, just below the elbow. He is holding hands with a six-year-old boy on his right and a pretty four-year-old girl on his left. The boy has a round face, and a carefully combed lock of hair peeps endearingly from under his cap and cuts a straight line across his forehead. 
He is wearing a magnificent double-breasted coat with two rows of huge white buttons. From the bottom of the coat sprouts a pair of short trousers, beneath which peeps a narrow band of white knee that is immediately swallowed up in long white socks, presumably held up by garters. The little girl is smiling at the photographer. She looks as though she is well aware of her charms, which she is projecting very deliberately at the lens of the camera. Her soft, long hair, which comes down over her shoulders and rests on her coat, is neatly parted on the right. Her round face is plump and happy. Her eyes are elongated and slanted, almost Chinese-looking, and there is a half-smile on her full lips. She has been dressed in a tiny double-breasted coat over her dress, identical to her brother's in every respect, only smaller and wonderfully sweet. She too is wearing little socks that go up to her knees. On her feet she has shoes whose buckles sport cute little bows. The boy in the picture is my Uncle David, who was always called Ziozia or Ziozinka, and the girl, that enchanting, coquettish little woman, the little girl, is my father. Let's just say the mother wanted a daughter and had not at that point accepted the fact she had given birth to a son. The son accepts the fallibility of the father even when, later in the book, it takes on a sinister air. The reader gets the sense Arya Klausner was not prepared for the role of fatherhood, or any roles, marital, professional, etc., It's telling that while Oz often cuts his father down, it's for many of the things that we might associate with the son. His love of language, knowledge, the wider world. The protagonist in Panther in the Basement is called Profi. He is certainly a version of the 11-year-old Amos Oz. But Profi is also the name that could be given to the father. Despite all the criticisms contained in the memoirs, the son is not fighting with the father so much as wrestling with him. Renaming himself Oz and dropping the Klausner was perhaps a necessary act at the time it was done, but the distinction underlies similarities, not differences. A Tale of Love and Darkness is a long book, and I could say so much more about it. Aside from family, which is the focus, Oz discusses history, religion, the role of the individual in a nation that stresses the group, It also reminds us of what the memoir genre can do, illuminate a life of work, as opposed to what contemporary memoir so often does, describing the various deviations of the author's life to both titillate and calm the reader. See, we're all screwed up. Although the history of the memoir as confession is long, it goes back to the beginning of the memoir form and marks every quasi-fresh reincarnation of that form, confession alone does not make for much of a story. You need more. Tangent. As I was reading this book, the oddsmakers were favoring a Nobel Prize win for best-selling Japanese author Haruki Murakami. Note from the future, Patrick Modiano won the prize. Every so often on the pod, I alluded to the fact that I generally enjoy reading Japanese novels, but I haven't got a clue what most of them are about. That's the case with Tanizaki, Mishima, Kawabata, Oe, and above all, Murakami. Bookmakers usually get these predictions wrong. They are counting buzz, reflecting who people think will win, rather than who is likely to win, never mind who deserves to win. But the prediction gives me an excuse for separating the Murakamis of this literary world from the Oz's, based on a simple distinction. Murakami, on the evidence of his work, is missing one of Oz's key ingredients, moral courage. 
It's everywhere in Oz, in his literature, in his political writings, and in his action. When you read a good Amos Oz novel, you understand the author has put something important on the line, has risked something, as he has done when he writes about his mother and father. The words, as a result, hold greater weight. The story is more meaningful, and the reader is more grateful for it. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of David Lodge's close-to-the-bone novel, Death Sentence. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. Thank you to our special guest reader, Alina Vogelnest. You want me to read that again? Because oh, I giggled. <laughs> to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Okay, I don't even know what this word is. Pujit? I've never heard of that before. What the hell is that? A Pujit? It's a Peugeot. And on the eve of opening day, well, almost, go Jays. Hello there, this is Craig Murray, former British ambassador, dissident and author of Murder in Samarkand, and you're listening to Radio Litopia. Radio Litopia.